um, that can almost be just the beginning of the Monday Morning Pastor. Now, the music that we have is great. Uh, Love it. Joel, our, our producer, just does a great job with all that stuff, and and I just enjoy it. But I think it'd be good for us to maybe think about like just writing a sonnet of some sort for pastors <laughs> on Monday morning. I, I can help write it. You do not want me singing it. No, I, 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 I disagree. I have a I few spiritual gifts, but I do know my spiritual ungift would be singing. <laughs> you, that and math. You do not want me to be involved in singing or math. Trust me on this the one. The spiritual ungift of so like, math. Wow, Jared sang, and then all of a sudden our numbers plummeted on subscribers. <laughs> Actually, he is good at math. <laughs> just Who's that guy like, that was on... Uh, Oh, like the, she bangs, like the guy who thought he was amazing singing the Ricky Martin. Yeah. William Hung. Yeah. Is that his name? That is his name. years ago. Yes. And he thought he was awesome. Yeah. And then he was like crushed. Yeah. When he found out what everyone in America knew, he yeah. could not sing. Yeah. Talk about a blind spot. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> sometime we need to talk about the Johari window. We do need to talk about, about blind Johari spots. Window. Yeah. Because William Hung totally had a yes. very huge Johari window quadrant. That yeah. was just missing. Like it overshadowed everything. <laughs> if you're wondering what we're talking about, Johari, what the heck is that? Yeah. It's We'll get to it. But yeah. you introduced me to that yeah. several years ago, and I yeah. use that a lot now with leaders. Yeah, I find it so. to be super helpful. And yeah, but anyways, with uh, <laughs> blind spots, one of the things that's really good is we're actually not talking about blind spots this week, but we're we're having part two of the conversation with Steve. So why don't you uh, tee us up for this, Jair? Yeah. Well, if you missed last week, make sure you listen to part one. You'll understand a little bit of Steve's story and his background. But Steve is passionate about something called family systems theory. And family systems theory is something um, that was invented a long time ago. Uh, I think over the last several years, there have been pastors getting excited about someone who was involved in family systems theory by the name of Edwin Friedman. Yeah. And Ed Friedman, uh, posh a book was written uh, by his daughter on all of uh, Ed, Edwin's writings uh, called A Failure of Nerve. And Failure of Nerve was recommended to me by our good friend Todd Heestand maybe too. a decade ago. He recommended that book yeah, to me as well. Yeah, he was so on that for a long time. And the phrase that Friedman talked about was a non-anxious presence and self-differentiation. And and so uh, basically taking uh, Bowen, uh, which you're going to hear uh, Steve talk about, uh, this guy named Bowen, uh, and basically taking Bowen's work and then Friedman took it and created it into a congregational idea, church as family or congregation as family. Friedman was Jewish. And uh, and he's got several books out. Generation to Generation is the best one that helps uh, helps you think through family systems theory and how it impacts a church. Uh, Free, uh, Friedman's book, Failure of Nerve, helps with just general leadership. But uh, Steve and I both agree the best book by Friedman is something called Friedman's Fables, which no one talks about, but there are these little fables or parables, kind of modern day parables that he writes that are just two or three pages long of talking about this with these fictional stories and uh, it just kind of bringing systems theory, family systems theory into it. So you're going to really enjoy this. It is going to be heady and it is a little bit heavy. I mean, there are times Steve, yes. Steve gets emotional uh, on this and he talks about that, which we so respect his vulnerability and he just models that so well. In this, So we're really excited, but just uh, fasten your seatbelts and just know it's going to be a little bit heady and it's going to be a little bit heavy, but stick with us because this is so important. We think this is so crucial. Uh, if you stick with it, we really believe you're going to find this to be a valuable investment of your time. So this is our friend, Steve Cuss. grateful for Steve Cuss to be back again with us for a second episode here. And one of the things, one, one of the ways that I was introduced in addition to Mandy Smith, but was introduced to you, Steve, was through your book, Managing Leadership Anxiety. I read that and said, Doug, you got to read this book. And uh, we both have enjoyed that and have listened to almost every one of the episodes on your podcast. So um, you have been involved in something that we touched on a little bit in the previous episode called family systems theory. Yeah, uh, This may be a new concept to a lot of people. And so why don't you explain a little bit what is family systems theory? And then eventually we want to downstream, uh, be able to talk about why does this matter in the life of a pastor or in a congregation? But let's start. What is family systems theory to someone who maybe has never heard the term before? Yeah, great question. And yes, I, I would say family systems theory is a game changer for faith leaders. It's, it's well worth people exploring. So the two things that I think are most helpful is I've tried to help people get into it. 
is two understandings. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about the history of it because that's that'll help us understand it. And then I think we'll talk about the nature of how anxiety works. So the history, 1954, a psychiatrist named Murray Bowen, not even a psychologist, he's just a psychiatrist, is in a psych ward. And you can imagine 1950s psych wards, pretty old school. He's working with adult paranoid schizophrenic men in their 20s and early 30s. And he notices on Sunday afternoon when parents come to visit, uh, this is honestly, this story is well before gender inclusivity. So he talks a lot about mothers. I, I like to think today he would see the same issue with fathers. But he says, mum comes to visit adult son. And you can tell by her posture, she's this petite little thing. The adult son's this kind of big loking guy. And you can see by her posture, she's afraid of him. She's intimidated by his physicality. He was probably in a picnic when he was a teenager uh, as a schizophrenic. And so when she walks toward him with her arms outstretched to give him a hug, she's tentative and she's sending him a mixed message. And then the son gives her a tentative hug back because the son's trying to read unspoken her message. When the son gives her a tentative hug back, the mother punishes the son and says, what's the matter? Aren't you glad to see me? And Murray Bowen looked at that whole interaction. He saw it happen again and again and again. And he's like, "Uh aha, pathology doesn't just happen inside somebody. Pathology is generated between people in the nature of their relationship. What had happened in this case, the two technical terms is the mother had, had sent the son a mixed message, arms outstretched, I'm glad to see you, tentative, I'm not glad to see you. And then when the son tried to honor that, the mother then put the son in what's called a double bind. You can't, he can't win. And Bowen out of that formed the eight concepts of Bowen theory. And I won't go into those. Um, people can Google them. They're very accessible, but he was really the first thinker or the first public one. Some people, family systems nerds love to argue about who actually started this, but for the, for the sake of today, Murray Bowen was really the guy that said, let's look at how people relate with each other as much as what's inside of us. And that's where I think for faith leaders, it's so helpful. One of Murray Bowen's students, Edward Friedman, came along. He's a Jewish rabbi. And he said, hey, I think, um, I think what Murray Bowen is saying on the therapy couch can be translated into the congregation. He's like, what if a congregation acts just like a family? And so he wrote this incredible book, Generation to Generation, and then he's written others since. So that's one understanding. And, and really, systems theory trains people in how to pay attention to process as much as content. So content mm -hmm. would be what people say. Process would be how people relate. And, and my thesis, at least, is that people listen to content, but they react to process. And so what I try to do in my book and in my work is I try to train people to bring process from a subconscious thing up to our conscious and then from there to have a healthy discussion about it. So I don't think it's helpful if one leader knows process, but the team doesn't. I think the healthiest teams is where the leader leads the team in a process conversation. So for any of our listeners who want to be brave, next time you have a staff meeting, just ask this question. Just ask the staff, hey, what's something that we've all agreed on that we've never talked about? Mm. And you, if, if, you, if people feel safe with you, they will say, well, Bob always is the first to speak. They'll say, uh, Lucy never speaks unless she's spoken to. She, unless she's called upon, she will never give her opinion. Why is that, Lucy? Now, everyone already knows this, but they're not talking about it. They're just, they've secretly agreed to it. They'll say, oh, well, Harry and George and Jane never speak up in a meeting, but after the meeting, they have their own meeting. They have the meeting after the meeting. Mm -hmm. So, so family systems theory, I think can really help a leader in, in harnessing some of that. Uh, the second is the understanding of chronic versus acute anxiety, but I'll just pause in case you want to jump on any of the first thing before we introduce a new concept. Yeah, that's great. And I would love for you to do uh, those two levels of anxiety in just a moment. Maybe you could give, as you talk about a staff meeting, can you give an example either from your book or from your church, or maybe you've seen a pattern of other congregations of some more examples? I mean, you talked about the 50 psych ward with the mother and the son. What would be some practical examples or stories of where that happens within a congregation? 
Yeah. One of the great concepts of Bowen theory or systems theory is triangulation that human beings always try to form a triangle relationship, whether we should or not. And some of them are healthy, but most of them are unhealthy. And so a triangulated relationship is any relationship where there should only be two people, but there's three people in it. So if you're talking about a church culture, gossip is always triangulation, but it gets way more subtle for a faith leader. If somebody comes to you and says, Hey, can you keep a secret? And you say, Oh yes, I'm a confidential person. I can keep a secret. But then they say, uh, don't tell Missy, the prayer leader, I'm going to form a second prayer group because she's doing it wrong. The faith leader, the, the person has now triangled you against Missy and you may, you know, may not be aware. Oftentimes a faith leader will get in trouble and not even know it because somebody will vent to you and you're listening and caring. And then they will take your listening and caring as endorsement. And then they'll co-opt you on their team and use you against the friend. And you'll get a phone call from, let's say, some guy named David. And David will say, what's your problem with me? And you'll say, what? I, I don't have a problem with you. Well, Simon said that he and you were talking and you both agreed that I'm doing this thing wrong. That's triangulation. And you're saying, oh, actually, Simon came in very upset. I didn't really know what to say. He was kind of all reactive. So I just listened and tried to care. If you're not careful, you'll be triangulated in. So there's thousands of examples like that all the time. Mm. Um, the other, the other thing is with, with whole content versus process is, um, anxiety is always contagious in a group. And once a leader starts to notice it, you can actually watch it spread and it'll, it'll end up where the most anxious person in the room has the most power unless a leader practices another concept of system theory called differentiation, mm. which is the ability to be a non-anxious presence in an anxious environment. This is what I learned as a hospital chaplain. And it's, it's, it's a lifelong skill. Bowen would say that it's a lifelong endeavor. It's not a destination, uh, but it's the ability to be in the presence of an anxious person without their anxiety infecting you to where you now become reactive. And also your ability to manage your own anxiety. So it's not infecting others. So a differentiated person is able to have a very difficult conversation with another person without any heat. Mm. So if one of my staff members, if they aggravate me, if I get really frustrated with them, I will work on, I won't talk to them about it until I've lose, lost all the heat. So I can have a non-anxious conversation about something that's bothering me. And then they tend to receive it much. It's much less threatening to them. Like if someone's always late, for example, it really bugs me when people are late. I have this weird thing about being prompt. It's a courtesy issue I have. I feel like they're disrespecting me. I have an overreaction to it, quite frankly. That's how I know it's a problem. If I'm not differentiated, I'll, I'll find ways to punish them, you know, but I can simply say to them, Hey, here's the thing. I'm not saying it's good or bad or not, but I take promptness so seriously. I just want you to know it's going to cost you more than it's worth with me. Like it's okay to be late, but you, I need you to have the courtesy to call me or text me and let me know. Um, and if you've always had a lifelong habit of being late, that's not going to work very well here because of how much I value it. I'm not saying, and, and I'm not willing to value it less. I just want you to know. So I can actually have that conversation with somebody. Uh, and then they'll be like, and, and they may say to the friends, oh man, what, what's his problem? Like three minutes late, get over it. But I found with late people, late people are always late. You know, they, they act like every time they're late, it's, it's shocking. <laughs> oh, man, I'm late again. Fancy that. <laughs> and so to be able to have that, that level of conversation with somebody. And then also what's equally important is they can have that conversation with me. So my leaders under me can say, Hey man, um, you tend to, you tend to say things like you really mean them, but I've learned working for you that you don't always mean them as much as you sound. So a month ago, you said we were doing this one thing and I'm about to go off and do it. So I just thought I'd check in with you before I do it. Do you still care about it? Because I don't want to put money and time and people's energy. And, and I'll say, thank you so much for asking. I don't care about it anymore. I'm so sorry <laughs> that I gave you the impression. But I don't feel attacked by that because I don't want my good people to be wasting their time on what the reality is, is I'm a verbal external processor. Mm. Uh, so it's important to hear that I'm not the Yoda guru and all my minions. 
<laughs> a, a good leader will create a culture where we can all have this conversation with each other in a non-threatening way. That's good. You know, when you've said it on the podcast, when you say anxiety is contagious, I think of two things. Fortunately, I've had a chance to work with this guy who's, uh, Doug, who's very calm. And so he's brought a calmness, which I tend to skew very much on the anxious scale. And so I bring the contagious anxiety, but I also think Doug brings the anxious calm or the, uh, the contagious calm. And so it's funny. I also smile when you say anxiety is contagious because the first phrase that I heard several years ago was at a leadership conference was a kind of a Marine ex Marine kind of trainer guy talking about inspiration and leadership. And he said, calm is contagious. So it's interesting. It sounds like in leadership and especially so in the church, you're contagious no matter what. Yes. So you're either anxious and for you're going to be contagious positively or negatively. So do you want people to catch it? I think you say catch it like a cold, you know, or do you want people to catch it like inspiration uh, and remain calm? So I just, yeah, the idea of contagious leadership is fascinating. Yeah, um, for sure. And I think too, like I, I just keep getting the the sense that so much of this is about safety, creating safe systems, and. I think one of the things that's a real challenge with pastors and churches today is you have a lot of people that walk in with a ton of baggage, especially if pastors are on staff um, and it's not their first church, there may be a lot of hurt and a lot of um, you know trauma that comes from the other spaces. And so, yeah, when it comes to like creating these healthy systems, like what are some like real simple things just in terms of thinking about safety? Like how do you create safety, especially in that? And my, my I think I remember in your book, you talked about just the importance of like naming things and like naming what's going on. Um, but yeah, could you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I think uh, naming the dynamic is one of the most powerful tools if you can name it in a non-anxious way. And that is where sometimes it takes days or weeks before you're ready to have that conversation. Cause you have to work on yourself. Like, like the promptness thing, that's an example that doesn't matter very much. But when, when you as a leader are noticing that your punishment for that person doesn't fit their crime, that's an anxious response. I think one of the, one of the misunderstandings of anxiety is people think it's just worry and fear. It's actually anxiety is actually anything that you do next when you didn't get what you think you needed. Mm. So the reason we get anxious when we're criticized is because I need to be right or I need to be liked or something like that. I have a need and it's not being met. So I get anxious. Uh, so anxiety can look like anger, uh, mansplaining, um, laying on a couch and binging Netflix, which isn't always anxiety. I don't mean to say that every mm -hmm. time you're on a couch binging, but anxiety can look like relaxing. Um, so just knowing that really helps. But naming the dynamic, you know, most of the time people will come to me and say, hey, I don't know what to do. Here's the situation I'm in. And then they will masterfully lay out for me the moves that they and the other person are making. He does this and then I do that. And then he does this and I do that. And like, that's why I think it's magical is they're already aware of process. They're already reacting to process. They've just not been trained on how to raise it to content level. And that to me is where change really happens. So typically the ability to have a process conversation with somebody without heat. And I think for any healthy leader at the same time to invite that level of conversation from the person. So it's never this top down, here's what you're doing wrong. You should almost always be saying, I'd like to tell you the impact it's having on me. And I'd like to hear from you the impact that I'm having on you. What, what am I doing that maybe I'm not aware of? Um, a friend of mine named Jay, he's a systems theory guy. He's a pastor in town. He's one of the smartest guys I know. He annually with his key staff will get in a room and he'll say, all right, we're all going to go around the room. What's the one unique contribution that I bring to this church that no one else does? We're all going to share that with each other. And then what's the one detriment that I bring that you'd like me to work on this year? That's phenomenal. Like yeah. that's great. And then he says, I'm going first because he's the main leader. And they all say, here is what you do. That's a gift. And I wish you wouldn't do this as much because it hurts. And then at the end of that, he has everyone pledge and he goes first, I'm going to work on that. 
I'm going to ask you how I'm doing. So just being aware of your impact, we all have it. You know, we all, none of us have outgrown impacting each other. I still cause damage. You know, I'm hyper aware of this stuff, but I'm still in my own system ultimately. So I'm still operating out of my shadow side and my false self and all of that. But creating a culture where people can come to you without being punished for it and you can uh, come to them really helps. Uh, and it, it takes it takes a while for sure. Kind of getting back to the question, or you were going to launch into chronic versus acute anxiety. My sense is that actually flows really well into into what what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I, I think as I've been um, uh, as I've been talking more now that the books out, I've been talking more about it. I, I wish I had overtly put this in the book because the number one objection I get to my work is I'm not very anxious. And usually if they're married, I just say, well, what would your spouse say? <laughs> and then the spouse always knows. Um, so acute anxiety is um, an actual threat to your actual life. And it's always temporary. So uh, the other day I was jogging my dog and I, I were on a dirt path and I cross a stream and she won't cross. I'm on one side of the stream and she's got the, the leash yanked on the other side of the stream. And I turn and look back and she's eyeing a snake. And I had jogged right over the snake. I didn't even see it. And it looked very much like a rattlesnake. And my heart leapt, you know, I had that adrenal response. And then I take another look and it's a bull snake. It it's, doesn't have a rattle. So I very carefully get my dog around the snake and then I'm chatting to my dog. It's okay, Sydney. It's going to be okay. It's just a bull. It's not a rattlesnake. It's just a bull snake. And in case you're concerned, my dog does not speak nor understand English. <laughs> <laughs> um, but of course, I'm calming myself, you know, and uh, using my dog as an externalization to calm myself. And that's acute anxiety. You're under an actual threat. It's temporary, but then you can calm yourself afterwards. And, and there's a lot of situations of acute anxiety. If somebody breaks in front of you on the interstate, if your child is actually playing or climbed up the top of something, that is not the time to open chapter four of my book and try to figure out what's wrong with me. <laughs> uh, my book is only interested in chronic anxiety and a, a chronic anxiety in contrast, it's not short term, it's ever present. It's always with you. And every one of us carry various levels of chronic anxiety. The second difference is it's not an actual threat. It's a perceived threat. So for example, if, if somebody doesn't like me, if I've done something to hurt somebody or make them mad, I always get anxious because I have a people pleasing idol, but it's actually not true that I'm under threat. It's, my life is not in danger because I've disappointed somebody. And, um, and that's what I had to learn as a hospital chaplain. When I first started walking into trauma environments, I believed the lie that I was supposed to do something about it. And when I couldn't do something, I got anxious. So every one of us carries at first massive levels of chronic anxiety and burnout, especially in faith leaders has everything to do with chronic anxiety and not much to do with workload. Oh, say more, yeah. say more about this. Yes, yeah, because we're carrying this high level of stress. And, uh, I, you know, the book that I, I wrote, I teach it as an eight-month class in our church, and I've been teaching it for several years. And I have facilitators that help me. And one of the facilitators, a friend of mine, Jimmy, he's a great facilitator of this material. He said to the class one day, because someone said, oh, man, this is really hard work. What, you know, these genograms and these tools you're having us do, and this is hard work. And Jimmy said, it is hard work but it's no harder than the hard work you're doing now carrying all this. You're just used to that hard work. You're so used to it. You don't even know the impact it's having on you. I thought that was really profound in Vegas at my last church. I did a lot more work with people in domestic violence. I still do some of that work here, but I did a lot of that work in Las Vegas and I have come to the conclusion that chronic anxiety acts like an abuse, an, an abuser. And that much like a domestic violence victim or survivor, we tolerate it way too much. And we think we can't get out of it. We think there's no hope. I, I have, I, and I wrote a theology of anxiety in the book because I really believe anxiety offers us a false gospel of doom. It, it shrinks our world. It limits our options. It tells us there's nothing you can do about it. But actually there is a way to interact with the gospel of Jesus that can actually break anxiety's grip. Uh, and that's, that's what I'm interested in helping particularly leaders do is to name their triggers, 
create healthy systems and, and you'll always be anxious, but you'll never put up with it quite as much. Uh, I used to be anxious for weeks at a time over one incident. Now it's about 24 to 48 hours. And I'm mm-hmm. pretty proud of that number. I think that's a pretty hard fought number. You talk about triggers. And one of the things we've talked about here on the podcast and we've encouraged our our listeners to think through is what do you do when you're blasted? And so blasted being this acronym, what do you do when you're bored, lonely, anxious, or afraid, stressed, or tired? And when I coach leaders, this is a question that comes up, you know, every, every few sessions actually. So like, is this a response to you being bored or, well, most leaders aren't bored, but you know, is this because you're tired? You know, is this a reaction out of your anxious spirit right now? And so it sounds like a lot of those triggers, but you talked about, um, just briefly, but I want you to drill down a little bit further on the theology of anxiety. Unpack what you mean. What is a theology of anxiety that pastors need to pay attention to? Oh, yeah. I love talking about this. And first of all, I love that acronym. I've never heard that acronym before. So I'm going to have to figure out how to steal it and say that I've always said that. It's it's for the kingdom. There's yeah. no plagiarism. Go for it. <laughs> I think, boy, what a helpful question that is. And I, before I get on theology of anxiety, the other reason I love that question is part of the thesis of my work is the more nuanced and specific you can get, the more free you can be. So I love mm. how you've broken down in that question, the different ways that you can have a response. I think that's a, boy, I, I, I love mm. that. Theology of anxiety. Um, in, in Romans 6, Paul lays out what feels to me like a fork in the road. And he's, he's talking about um, being either a slave to sin or a slave to God. And I think it's actually one of the most challenging passages to preach in 21st century Western culture, because either path you're a slave. And in Western culture, we believe that freedom means that we can do whatever we want. But in the Bible, freedom means you've been unleashed from this terrible thing. And now you're connected to this amazing thing, you know? So you're no longer shackled by sin. You're now tethered to the love of God. And I think in Western culture, it's just, that's a tough message. But, um, I, I think as I've studied Romans six and as, as I've, I've spent years and years just carefully analyzing the way anxiety works, chronic anxiety. And my conclusion is that chronic anxiety works exactly the same way that sin works in Romans six. And what Paul says is be so careful not to offer parts of your body to sin because whatever you offer yourself to will grab you and like drag you down a dark path of doom and it'll lead to death. It's very, very stark, very graphic. And uh, so I want to be clear. I'm not suggesting that anxiety is a sin. Uh, in the last episode, we did suggest that not fly fishing in Colorado is a sin. <laughs> I'm sticking with that. That's true. That's true. All right. But I'm not interested. We were just about to scrap this whole thing if you went back on that too. Oh, so. and I can't renege yeah. on that. It's true. Yeah. Uh, but um, but I'm, I'm not interested in the question, is anxiety a sin? I honestly could care less. Mm. I, don't, I don't care. But it, if you start to think of anxiety as a spiritual dark force that gets a hold of you, like an addiction, and so with a with an addict, they reach for the bottle, and then over time, the bottle has a grip on them. They start with they think they have a grip on the bottle, but then over time, the bottle has a grip on them. Anxiety, chronic anxiety, is exactly the same. And so, the the gift of anxiety is it goes from being this cursed thing that takes us down a path of death, that once you learn some tools to be aware of it, it becomes an early detection device what I write about, it's an early detection device that your false self is at play. And so the blaster question you asked, in my parlance, it would simply be in that moment, you're depending on the false self, not your true self. You're depending on something other than your identity in Christ. And that's why you're anxious because anxiety wants you to depend on your false self. And in this situation, it's anything that I think I need that I don't really need to be okay. So, uh, one of, one of my, uh, idols or childhood vows, um, I always believe the lie that I need to know the answer. And I always believe the lie that I need to be the smartest person in the room. And sometimes trying to be the smartest person in the room is terribly damaging for our team because we have really sharp people, but I always want to be the smartest. And so I can, I'll start to notice if I'm one upping, they tell a story and I'm like, let me share my version. And it's, I used to believe it was my best attempt to participate in the conversation and I've come to believe it's 
me trying to be the smartest person in the room. And I'm actually just dismissing them in my attempt to participate. So I have an early trigger on that. Um, but always knowing the answer. So I'm, I might walk into an elders meeting, for example, knowing that I believe these two lies and I'll be praying on the way in, you know, Jesus died to free me from needing to look smart. Jesus died to free me from needing to have, they, they may ask me a question and I don't know because someone else on my staff has that answer. It's okay to say to the room, I don't know. And it's insane um, how freeing that really is. Uh, uh, that that to me, this is where the cross of Christ actually takes root in my life. That in that one moment, I can rest in Christ rather than act out of my false self. That would be. It's hard to explain verbally. Uh, it took me a lot of care to write it because it is a nuanced thing. But that that's what I would say is if a leader can start to figure out. What do you need? And if you're interested, you can figure out why you need it. Like I need to be the smartest person in the room because I grew up feeling stupid, which has nothing to do with my parents. It's really strange. I had, I had great parents, but I always believed as a kid, I was the dumb kid uh, in school and in sports and with girls. Like I'm a teenager and I'm never the smartest kid in the class. I'm, I'm always last picked on the athletic team and I didn't know how to talk to girls. And so I just started this false narrative. Oh, I'm, I'm a dumb kid. And mm. so that, so I've overcompensated for 20 years. If you look at my library, it's immense. Cause I'm, I've gone, I went on a 20 year reading binge. <laughs> uh, and, and I feel like I'm going on a bit here, but part of what's fascinating is when you start to do some work on how God's actually redeemed, even your idolatry or even your childhood vows. Cause now I have this great theological interest. And, and so at the same time, I was feeding this need to be smart and also God was redeeming it for his kingdom. When you talk about talking about it versus writing about it, and again, we want to make sure our listeners know that not only what the book is, but that we highly recommend it called Managing Leadership Anxiety. And you have a podcast by that same title. Um, but Steve, uh, we're really curious, what was your favorite chapter or concept that you wrote about or the one that you feel is most important that readers get sort of part a and then part B on the podcast. I'd be curious to know like what, what's an episode or two or a guess that you had that you said, I know they're all good. I know that's what you're supposed to say. You love all your children the same, but, <laughs> but, but what's one that personally really struck you of saying, wow, like that's, that was pretty, pretty meaningful. So whichever one you want to take first, but on the podcast and the book side, I'd be very curious. Oh, that's awesome. It's hard to answer on the book because I, I tried to build every chapter to build on the concepts of the previous chapter. So mm-hmm. it, it is intended to be a journey. My nightmare scenario with a book is that people would read it and not talk about it with a friend. And I'm not saying that I don't get any personal benefit from people discussing my book. It's just that the book is based on a highly interactive class I teach where it's not my teaching that transforms. It's people talking about the concepts with each other that transformation happens. But what I've discovered since publishing the book is, is one of the most unique things I've written about. I think the theology of anxiety that we've covered is unique to me. But chapter six, I tried to summarize some of the best concepts of family systems theory in one chapter because I had a word limit from the publisher. Otherwise, I I would have written more about it. And I think what I didn't realize is how rare a concept called second order change is. That even when I interact with some highly skilled PhD level systems theorists who are amazing, they've never even heard of it. And so I've discovered that I happen to fall into a very um, exclusive concept that I was taught in seminary by a systems theorist called Second Order Change, I think it's a game changer for leaders. That's great. How about on the podcast side? What, uh, it was a, what, a concept, a topic, or even um, a guess that you had? I mean, while you're thinking about that, I'm, your, your interview with Max Licato, I, I, I think Max's willingness to be that honest mm-hmm. of someone who's that well-known yeah. and his willingness to go there yeah. 
was really meaningful. I remember Amazing. I was in the Philadelphia airport, like getting off my flight, getting on the, the to go get my rent, my, my car to drive home and listening to that and going out loud. Wow. Like I'm yeah. so grateful for his honesty in this mm-hmm. situation. So anyway, I'm curious for you, what, what was important or what stuck out to you and, on the episodes that you've done so far? Max was amazing because I, I do think what I loved about Max, I, I, everything you just said, his, his bravery, I greatly respect. That's a good word, bravery. Um, but I think, you know, he's probably the largest, the, the, he's probably the most famous uh, selling modern author in history, I would bet. But um, I think at the end of the day, he's, he's fully human being. And I think for him to show up as a fully full human being was really great. Yeah. It's so hard to choose, um, an episode. It is like having your kids. I'm very, <laughs> I think because I, no one knows me, you know, I, I've basically been doing this in my own very localized context for 20 years and through an almost accidental connection with a friend at leadership network, they took an incredible chance on me uh, to publish. And then Harper Collins took that same chance. Cause I have no platform, like no platform at all. And um, so I think part of what's been delightful about the podcast is all the amazing people who said yes, even before the book came out that I never thought people like Kay Warren. So for Kay to come on and talk so openly about her son's suicide was breathtaking to me. Um, I think Nancy Ortberg is a leadership phenomenon, but it feels so unfair because uh, Shane Wood, I brought a theologian on and the way Shane has integrated his pain and his abuse survival with uh, the gospel, his book is stunning. But uh, what people have said to me is I've never heard somebody laugh so much, you know, and that just shows the level of work Shane has done with his own trauma story. But then Andrew Newberg, who um, a neurotheologian, here's this guy shooting die into people and then making them sit into a scan room and meditate while he takes brain scans. I really enjoyed uh, asking him about his own faith and um, just re- it reminded me how brilliant people are and how narrow their lane is. Like he basically said, if I can't prove it, I don't believe it. And that's my whole family, you know, mm. like he's, I'm very familiar with that approach. Man, a oh man. You've had so many good ones. So many good ones. Incredible. It's mm-hmm. been so much yeah. more. Oh my goodness. Like uh, about seven, about 70% of everybody I asked says yes. And that mm. still blows me away. I've got a whole slate of guests coming up in the fall and I still can't believe cause they don't know. It's a cold, cold email that I send to them. And I try to write the email in a way that maybe they'd be intrigued. Cause I do think, I, I'm onto a topic that they want to talk about. Um, I had a large, very well-known leader who keeps saying no, and I won't say who it is because this person's a fine human being, but this person has handlers. You know, I'm not dealing directly with the guest. I'm dealing with their handlers. And the handler said, oh, how big's your platform? And I emailed back and I said, it's tiny. Like, it's this person isn't coming on my show for my people. What's going to happen is I'll bring this guest on my show for his or her platform, which is millions. And I guarantee you, I'm not going to expose, I'm not TMZ, I'm not interested in, but I'll get a conversation out of your person that they've never talked about before. And it'll be Mm -hmm. a gift to his or her audience. And they said, no, I think it was a threat. Um, Yeah. So yeah. Well, you've had some great ones and it's, it's such a gift. And so we just want to say, keep interviewing, keep writing, keep teaching and preaching. The world needs to hear this. Yes. And we're so grateful, Steve, for what you're doing oh, and a very great. important topic. And so keep doing that. One last question for you before we let you go. I, I would love for you to do some biblical reflection here and think about family systems theory and characters in scripture. And so as you think about scripture, who is the most non-anxious presence uh, and who is the least? I mean, I think when I, when I think of least, I think of Abraham, right? Like it wasn't my idea, Sarah. Like you came up with the, Hagar, you deal with her, you know, or like, Hey Pharaoh, well, that's my sister. Right. So he's a terrible example, but I'm curious who you think is a great example besides Jesus. That's cheating. Of course we know that answer, <laughs> oh, but who does it well. And then on the other end, what's another example of maybe someone that, uh, that doesn't do well. Oh my goodness. So, so Jay, this is totally your fault for trying to wrap up a podcast with such an, I blame you for the question. Um, 
Because because what's fascinating about family systems theory is you start to see it all through scripture. So when you talk about things like triangulation and another concept I tackle in the book that I don't think is dealt with enough in leaders is generational sin, mm. generational patterns in our families, how the way we were raised and the family propaganda we were told. And it's not about blaming your parents. It's about understanding what cards you've been dealt and how to play them. You start to look at like Jacob and Esau, and you start to see the power of, of generational deceit, starting with Abraham. Mm. She's not my wife. She's my sister. Then Isaac tells the same lie to the same guy. She's not my wife. She's, and then you see Jacob, you see the triangles between Jacob and um, his dad and his mom. Esau is excluded. Like Jacob and his mother basically collude against his younger brother. Right. And then his dad's just detached. He's not a non-anxious presence. He's a non-anxious absence. He's just gone. So there's that whole thing that's fascinating to me. Uh, in the Old Testament, the, I would have to say the most non-anxious leader has to be Joseph. Uh, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. I think, I think uh, one of the things I write about in, in the book is every faith leader I know who I respect has been on the same journey. And one piece of that journey is we were all burned by the organization we love. Hmm. And, and one of my concerns nowadays is we like to talk about how we are victims of church power struggles, but we don't as leaders talk about how we're also perpetrators of it. So I, I was a victim of a church struggle and it was bad. Um, but I've also perpetrated it, not intentionally, but people have left my church wounded because of me. And, uh, <clears throat> when I think about Joseph, you know, I, I tended to like to share how I was burned and I get a lot of sympathy because I actually have a pretty remarkable story that would really curl your hair if I told you. Um, but when I read Joseph and he says, oh, well, God meant that for good, um, that, that humbles me. Jesus is, uh, even with non-faith family systems theorists, they all point to Jesus as the most non-anxious person in history. It's fascinating. The most differentiated person in history. The best example of that is on the road to Emmaus. He's walking with Cleopas and his companion and they're anxious, highly anxious. And what they're anxious about is Jesus. And if I was Jesus, I would be revealing myself to them as fast as I can to relieve their anxiety. Studying that passage for me is when I really started to come up with the, the soul care concept of when am I carrying someone's burden and when am I walking alongside them in their burden? Because Jesus' ability for them to stay anxious and him just to walk alongside was stunning. And then I think what happened, my take is because he was non-anxious and he didn't relieve them of their anxiety, they had a deeper encounter with God later then if I was the guy, I would have immediately, Hey, it's me. It's me. It's Jesus. You know, it's okay. And then they, I would have shortchanged their spiritual journey. And so for example, I've had people leave discovery, highly angry at me, some of it because of what I've done, a lot of it because of the meaning they've made out of a church leader and what's wrong with church leaders nowadays. And I'm a white male church leader. So I'm, I'm at the center of power and they've caricatured me in a certain way. That's not fair or accurate and my old self would have chased after them and tried to make them like me with more words and more meetings and more anxiety. And now it's like, you know what, God, uh, I'll never win them over. And in my effort to do it, I might shortchange the journey that you have for them. And maybe they'll find something in another church. And I, you know, that's been a big lesson for me. So systems theory is all through scripture. It's amazing to see it. I've wondered about writing a book, a, a devotional book, where I take Bible characters and put them through the lens of systems theory. I did that a little bit in my book. You know, I wrote Esau's genogram, you know, where his brother's in a boy band, that whole thing. Because <laughs> uh, we never consider what it's like for Esau. Of course he's angry. Of course he's, you know, when you look at, the, it's like the Bible takes Jacob's side, but when you look at Esau's side, he's, he's carrying a lot too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. And um, yeah, we're just so grateful for the work um, for the book. We really hope that uh, the listeners will get a chance to at least check out your podcast, but the book is just so worth it. And yeah, thank you again. And even just the resources on your website, uh, which is great, stevecusswords.com. Oh, yeah. Org, right? yeah. uh, I don't remember. Oh, I think no. I have to go see. I think it's stevecusswords.com. That's so funny. I don't remember. Let me just pull it up here. <laughs> It's stevecusswords.com. 
But I just love that it's it's cuss words. I told that to my 12 year old daughter and she thought that was the coolest thing, thing ever. <laughs> yeah. So, but anyways, I just, re- we, we appreciate your time and just the work that you're doing for um, just loving pastors and leaders well. So thank you, you very much. And we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks guys. Wow, that was heavy and heady. Yes, <laughs> yes. My head is spinning, um, but so much, so much, so much good stuff in in what he had to say. Yeah, I feel like we could just, I probably need a lot more time to just unpack, even though I've read the book and listened to a lot of the podcasts. Man, like there are so many good elements that... I almost wanted him to say, whoa, 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 stop right there. Let me right. just think for 10 minutes and then come back and then keep going. Yeah. He's really thought about this for a long time. Um, I especially loved when he talked about a theology of anxiety. Mm. I think we think immediately like anxiety is a sin. I, I think I really appreciated that he was able to tease that out a little bit more, yeah. um, but also talk about how it gets in the way of, of the gospel and us being who God has called us to be. And that's when we get anxious. I think that's really going to stick with me as someone who has a mild anxiety disorder and who has really tried to wrestle through my own anxiety and making sure I'm not uh, overlaying that on other people, which I do even when I don't know I'm doing it. And so um, anyway, yeah, that idea of like, Lord, help me be calm is a prayer that's become more and more common in me the last Mm. few months. So um, anyway, theology of anxiety really stuck out to me. Yeah. And and I love the framework around Romans six, the way that he framed that and said, it's, it's like you hook yourself to this thing that is going to kill you and the gospel frees us and hooks us to this new thing. And I mean, when he talked about his, sort of his window going from two weeks to 24 to 48 hours. I, I mean, I, yes, Jesus, I, I need, I need that. I think in my healthiest days that that can happen, but man, I just, I feel like the more I've been thinking through, uh, what does it look like to, to live in a, in a way where I, do life with God where he, Mm. I don't have to carry that, that burden and that weight, but I walk with him and work with him Yeah, that my life lives in this new rhythm, this unforced rhythm of grace. And so I would, yeah, that was What if we, the the thought hit me, what if we measured spiritual growth that way? That instead Mm. of two or three months, it was 24 to 48 hours instead of like how many minutes we prayed or read our Bible or how few cuss words we said. (laughs) What if it was measured in like, I was able to let go of that in two days rather Ooh, than two months. That's good. Like, that's a metric that we should be measuring. Right. You know, I've and, never thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just think that's what he's getting at. The reason why we wanted him on here, right. Is because people aren't talking about this yet. I think this is the very seat of spiritual growth and formation. Well, especially when we think about the issues that most of us pastors face as pastors, but even as pastors with the people in our churches, nine, you know, I can, I feel like nine out of 10 conversations are, I'm really struggling with anxiety. Yes. Right. I mean, that's like all the time. Yes. Well, I don't really have anything for you. It's like, which is why this might be one of those podcasts that we want to encourage you as listeners to go back and listen to a second time, maybe even flag it, highlight it, mark it to return to it a month from now, because our guess is in the next month, you're going to have people that walk up to you and say, when you say, how are you doing? They're going to say, I'm really struggling with anxiety. Right. This is an exponentially significant and prevalent issue in our culture today. And we I have all sorts of theories as to why that is. But I think we're gonna have an incredible opportunity to help people sort through this moving forward. Yeah, I totally agree. So yeah, JR, I know you I, I look over, you have some some resources written down. So why don't you tee us up with some of those things. Yeah. Yeah. I, two questions I just want to highlight and then resources. Two questions we asked uh, in the in the podcast episode itself that we want to make sure that we highlight. And so if you're a note taker, it'll also be in the show notes. But what do you do when you're blasted? We asked that in, in season one, but it's so important. We want to ask it again. What do you do when you're bored, when you're lonely, when you're anxious or afraid, when you're stressed, and when you're tired? 
What do you do when you're blasted? So that's the first question. And the second one is a question that I heard uh, from Liz Wiseman, who wrote the book Multipliers, which is a fantastic book and has changed the way I think about leadership. But she said, one of the questions you can give to your team or to people that know you best who will speak honestly and honoring to you is, when am I in my own way? As a leader or pastor, when am I in my own way? And how and where should I get out of my way? Um, so that's that's big. As far as resources, and we mentioned Steve's book uh, already, Managing Leadership Anxiety, uh, Yours and Theirs. Fantastic book. Highly recommend that book. And then, of course, his podcast by the same title, Managing Leadership Anxiety. Um, also, one of the resources or maybe even practices that he brought up that I love that I'm going to do, Doug, is where he talked about a life-giving list of being able to just write down. He said, I think he had 60 or 70 things on the list. Yes, that's pretty cool. That is really cool. And just to be able, I can think of the big ones, but going down the list, we talked earlier about hobbies, but maybe I need to drill down a little bit further, not just the big ones like being out on my canoe or going to a Phillies game, but what can I do for five minutes? What can I do for an hour that would just fill my bucket? Yeah, that's so, well, and even he said something and it, it was more in terms of, uh, I think it was in the conversation around being blasted, but he talked about how... Um, the more nuanced or specific you get, the freer you will be. Mm. And my sense is that that even goes on the positive side of the life-giving list of the more specific I can, you know, hang out outside. Like, that's great. But what are the specific yeah. three-minute things? And I, the, the, the older I get, the more I grow, the more I realize it's so important to be super sharp on these particular things. Great. Love it. Love it. And then the last one, if you've enjoyed us hearing, uh, hearing us talk about Edwin Friedman, we want to recommend that. And actually, we want to encourage you to start with the book Generation to Generation as we think about family systems theory inside the church in a congregational side of things. We would want to recommend that. Again, Edwin Friedman looks like Friedman, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N, Friedman. A generation to generation. And then again, all of this will be in the show notes. And so we encourage you not only to go back through the show notes from today's episode, last week's episode, and even if you wanted to go back, didn't have time to listen to all the previous episodes of season one, just check the show notes because there are questions for reflection for yourself and with others, with your team, your spouse, your friends, uh, as well as some resources and, and other exercises we'd recommend. But uh, once again, great to be with you. Really glad to be here in season two and just be reminded that who you are uh, is more important than what you do and that Jesus loves you not by what you accomplish today, not what you tick off on the list, not by how, how well you preach, not by how well you pray or visit people in the hospital. He loves you simply because you are treasured child of the King and live this week out of that. Live the gospel Monday through Saturday just like the same gospel you preach in the pulpit on Sunday. God bless and bless God. Have a great week.